Okay, this evening's um, reading is from uh, 1 Samuel 1, uh, verses 1 to 11, and then we skip ahead to verse 20 and go to verse 28, through to verse 28. So, there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, Elihu, and uh, son of Tohu, son of Azulf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one called Hannah and the other called Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her, her arrival had kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Uh, this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, uh, would, would say to her, Hannah, uh, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Or, uh, why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Uh, once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, uh, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorstop of the Lord's house. In his deep anguish, in her deep anguish, sorry, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. So just skipping into verse 20. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to her, so best to you, her husband, Elkanah, told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the, women, the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until he had weaned, as she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the, the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked for him, of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped, and he worshipped the Lord there. Well, thanks, John. It's always a tricky one, getting an Old Testament book and reading through uh, foreign names. 
Uh, you have noticed that uh, we're starting a new series. Uh, we've been finishing up our series that we looked at the parables of Jesus. Now we're going to be looking at uh, this uh, book of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. Uh, but before we do that, why don't I pray that God would help us to understand his uh, word. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And even though now we start to look at a part of your word that is ancient, thousands of years before our time, it is not constrained by time. And so, Lord, please help us to have ears that hear, hearts that are soft, to obey your word, to be moved and taught so that we have a right mind and serve you always. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to actually start uh, by going back to another famous time in history, maybe a little less famous uh, than the birth of Samuel. Uh, it's a moment of Australian sporting history. The 2002 Winter Olympics uh, at Salt Lake City in the USA, the final of the short track speed skating. Um, I've got it here on screen for you to follow. I wasn't all that nervous going into the final. I was uh, excited to be in the final and I knew that you know, I'd, I'd had a, a, a fair amount of luck to get from the semi-finals to the final. And I was just out there soaking out the atmosphere and, and hoping that I could skate well. The goals I had for myself for Salt Lake were quite simply just to skate what I thought was my best and satisfy myself. On paper I was probably at best, maybe the eighth best skater in the field. Some of the things that have happened to me throughout my skating career have been, uh, I guess a rollercoaster ride is a good way to describe it. And, I only went to Salt Lake because I didn't feel I'd skated my best at the previous three Olympics before that. Basically just took up the tactic, well, my best chance here is only, it's only a very minimal chance, but I'm just going to stay out of the way, and that way if anything does happen, then I'll be there to capitalise. I ended up dropping off the, the back of the other four guys with about two laps to go, and uh, ended up being 15 or 20 metres down when uh, yeah, the chaos happened and everybody fell down. Uh, the way I won the race, I wasn't going to be the guy that uh, you know, went around pumping the air and, and punching his fists around everywhere and, uh, and waving his arms around. I just sort of put my arms up in, a, in disbelief and, and uh, had a look of what the hell's going on here in my face. A lot of emotions all at once and some of them were... I guess a little hard for me to, to deal with and they still are. So, but, uh, you know, I've got the gold medal and just look at it like that, I guess. Winner of the gold medal representing Australia, Stephen Bradbury. The medal ceremony was something that I will always remember for a number of different reasons, but the main one being that I was having trouble uh, dealing with it the way that I won the race. And, you know, sure, I won the gold medal, but I wasn't the strongest skater out there. And you know, was, I would have liked to have been the guy who won the race because I was the strongest and I didn't feel 100% right about it all. And the medal ceremony uh, just expelled all those feelings as soon as the flag went up and the anthem started playing. It was like there was nobody else in the stadium and it was just a couple of minutes for me, so you know, it was pretty good. And that, friends, is how Australia won its first Winter Olympic gold medal. 
it was quite the reversal, was it not? Um, from being the absolute favourite to come last, he glides in for gold, going from last to first, from zero to hero, from an unknown into a national sporting icon. That's what I talk, in the blink of an eye, uh, Bradbury had a complete reversal of fortune. Now, in many ways, today's passage from 1 Samuel is like that. It's a reversal of fortune. Our hearts at first should be saddened as we introduce to Hannah, who cannot have children. But God hears her cry and lifts her up and her sadness turns into song. We're going to hear a song a bit later. And we too can join in with this song because what we're reading today is not just something that happened in the past. It's not just a piece of history. It's actually pointing forward to the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, there's going to be a massive, a massive reversal of fortune. Things that seemed important will not be important. Things that seemed insignificant will turn out to be eternally crucial. The first will be last. The last will be first. Uh, didn't we look at those words just last week? Jesus will return and everything will be turned on its head. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to 1 Samuel. Now, if you can't fully understand any part of the Old Testament without knowing uh, where it fits in the Bible timeline. So where does 1 Samuel fit in time? Well, it actually comes about a thousand years before Jesus. And in terms of what's come before 1 Samuel, we need to go back to Genesis. And just a potted history here, we look at Genesis chapter 12 where God chose a man, Abraham, and promised him land. He promised him that his descendants would grow into a great nation and that they would be a blessing to the whole world. And as the book of 1 Samuel opens, God has kept his promise. They've grown into a nation and his people have settled in a land of their own. But ever since they've moved into the land, the Israelites have been making a right mess of things. Whether it's under the pressure of attack from surrounding nations or the corruption of indwelling sin, Israel quickly falls into anarchy. Now, every so often, God would raise up a judge or, or a leader to save them. But as soon as that judge died, the cycle of immorality and rebellion would begin again. Now, in the book of Judges, which occurs right before 1 Samuel, at the close of that book, we see Israel sinking to horrific new lows. It's the darkest period in the Old Testament so far. And in the closing chapters of Judges, we have this repeated refrain, almost like a, a clanging gong. In those days, Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. And there, the very last verse of Judges there on the screen, in those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did as they saw fit. So is that the problem? Is that the problem? It's just a problem of leadership. If only Israel could have a king, just like all the other nations. Well, wouldn't that make everything better? 
Well, yes and no. And it's that tension between yes and no that 1 Samuel is all about. How is Israel going to have a human king and yet still serve God as their king? That's the big question that hangs over 1 Samuel. But let's come back. Let's come back to the very beginning of the book that we heard read earlier. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, where we're introduced to a a certain man from really a quite obscure town, Elkanah, from Remathame. And then as we zoom in on his household, we find out that things are complicated. Have a look at verse 2 here on the screen. Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Now, before we go on, just a short, a very short note uh, about polygamy and households with multiple wives. And the Bible speaks of polygamy uh, amongst the people of Israel, but get this clear, the Bible never endorses it. Nearly every recorded occurrence in the scripture highlights complications, as you could imagine, and the problems that come out of polygamy. Actually, God's intention for marriage is very clear. It's right there at creation. There is one Adam, and there is one Eve. Not one Adam and a collection of Eves. Well, even though Elkanah's household is facing issues... We actually should be encouraged by this family just a little because if we read on in verse 3, here on the screen, we read, Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. But this is a time, this time of sacrifice is actually not a happy time for Hannah. It's just another reminder of her pain and overwhelmed with sadness. In fact, Hannah's infertility is a sign that things are seriously wrong, seriously wrong in Israel. Because listen to this promise that God made in Exodus long before this time, here on the screen. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. In the opening verses of 1 Samuel, twice we're told that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now we can explain infertility uh, in medical terms, but in contrast to the promise of Exodus, Israel's rejection of God had turned to his judgment. And I guess that's no surprise when we see what was happening in the book of Judges. It was a terrible time to be in Israel. God's blessing had been taken away and infertility was just one of the consequences of that. And all of this is made worse for Hannah by the fact that Elkanah's other wife can have children. But rather than sympathise with Hannah in her sadness, she causes even more pain. Have a look at verse 6 here on the screen. 
because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, an interesting way to talk about the other wife, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she would not eat. I imagine you could say some pretty hurtful and spiteful things to a woman who couldn't have children. Oh, Hannah, here we are at the annual festival. What are you thankful to God for? We're thankful for the arrival of another baby boy. How, how, how hurtful would that be? Well, it gets to the point where Hannah can't take it anymore and so we read in verse 10 here on the screen in her deep anguish Hannah prayed to the Lord weeping bitterly and she made a vow saying Lord Almighty if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head Hannah is so desperate that she will make a deal with God. And it's here we actually get the next hint of how bad things were in Israel. Because have a look at the response of Eli the priest as he sees Hannah praying. Here in the screen, verse 13. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. The first reaction of the priest when he sees someone praying in the house of the Lord is to think they're drunk. Makes you wonder what's going on in the temple. Evidently, uh, not a lot of people were praying. Now, we don't have time now to explore um, the priestly situation at Shiloh at this time. Uh, you can read on for that in the latter part of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. But to suffice to say that the priest, Eli, wasn't that great. And his sons were even worse. Totally wicked. They used their priestly privileges to uh, exploit people and sleep around even in the tabernacle. The whole family was gluttonous and corrupt. And so God declared that he would bring that family to an end and raise up a faithful priest, a faithful priest who would do the job properly. So who would that be? Enter a baby boy who was never meant to be born. Verse 20 here on the screen. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Here is the great reversal. Out of the bleak darkness, there is now a glimmer of hope. Even though Israel is under the judgment of God, he will still listen if you will talk to him. Hannah asked God to hear her. And he did. And God answers by praying, by giving her a son. So she names him Samuel, which actually is a play on words, for Samuel sounds like 
the Hebrew word for God has heard. And now Hannah's sorrow turns into song. Her pain becomes praise. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's Tanner's prayer on the screen. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn or my strength is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. It has indeed been a great reversal of fortunes. There's no doubt about that. Hannah is happy and she's recognising God's goodness. But that's not all that God is doing. Because as Hannah goes on with this song, the momentum is going to start picking up even more. And she's going to start talking about even bigger reversals. Have a look at verse 4 here on the screen. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings drown to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. You see, the Lord, he can orchestrate all manner of reversals. He can break the powerful and strengthen the weak, just like that. He can take the rich and send them into poverty. And vice versa, he can lift the needy from the ash heap. He can shut down our heartbeat whenever he wants. But on the other hand, he can take the dead person and raise them to life. No one can oppose him. No one is his equal. He can close the womb and he can open the womb. But Hannah doesn't even leave it there. Her prayer is already going up to the next level, but now it's going to grow to cosmic proportions. In verse 10, we read this on the screen. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God will turn this entire planet upside down. What started with Hannah will reach the ends of the earth. Hannah looks forward to a day when every single person will be judged by God. But we need to pause and notice the last line in that verse, uh, verse 10. He will give strength to his king. His king But what have we been hearing in Judges? Israel had no king. Israel has no king. And his prayer is actually prophecy. God is now showing us what will happen in the future. In the great reversal, God will raise up a king and Hannah's actually part of that plan. Because as we read on, Hannah's son Samuel is going to be the prophet who will anoint Israel's first kings. 
So God actually is already at work to fulfill this prophecy. But actually, Hannah here is prophesying about a king that is beyond her wildest dreams. A king who would come 1,000 years later. When we open our Bibles to Luke's gospel, guess what we find? Another barren woman by the name of Elizabeth. A barren lady who becomes pregnant. She has a son. She doesn't call him Samuel. She calls him John. And as exciting as all this is, it's not actually all about John. Listen to John's words himself here on the screen, the beginning of Luke's Gospel. John said, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, this is John the Baptist and he is preparing the way for the king of kings, King Jesus. He's the one that's going to bring about the reversal that Hannah was talking about. Jesus is the one who will one day return and when he does, the dead will be raised, just like in Hannah's prayer. When Jesus returns, he will bring down the proud and he will exalt the humble, just like in Hannah's prayer. When Jesus returns, he will judge, just like Hannah's prayer. The first will be last, and the last will be first. You see, friends, the way into Jesus' kingdom is down. It is to get down on your knees and beg forgiveness. It is to humble yourself. To say that you desperately need Jesus' death to pay for your wrongs. It's to throw yourself at his mercy. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now I hope you can see both the warning and the comfort that comes in that. It's a warning. It's a warning because if you think that it's below you to ask for forgiveness, that somehow you think you're good enough, that somehow you can make it work, that you don't need God, well, you'll be brought down. You're heading for disaster. It's not by strength that one prevails, Hannah said in her prayer. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. It's a warning. But it's also a wonderful comfort because we look forward to that day when Jesus will right all the wrongs and fix things up. We don't have to worry because it's not fixed now. We don't have to get anxious if we're treated badly. We can let it go. We don't have to try to pay back people for the wrongs they do to us in this life. We can let it go. We don't have to worry that life hasn't worked out for us as we'd like to have hoped or planned. Hannah has said one day God will raise up the poor from the dust 
and lift the needy from the ash heap. A lot of stuff that we do for Jesus behind the scenes, well, it's just not noticed by the word world. And a lot of stuff that we give up for Jesus, well, it's actually laughed at by the world. But God notices. God notices what you do for him. And one day when Jesus returns, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. The last will indeed be first, and the first will be last. So if you're a follower of Jesus, hang in there. Hang in there because a great reversal is coming. If you're faithfully serving and waiting for Jesus through all the trials and tribulations of this world, then take heart. For one day you will be lifted up and taken into a perfect eternity with him. Let's give things to him in prayer now. Let's pray. Father God, we see so clearly the evidence in this world that we have messed it up and we're under your judgment. But Father, we do thank you that when Jesus returns, he will right the wrongs of this world. We thank you so much that it's not by our works but by your grace that we are saved. So help us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, we thank you that Jesus displayed that humility so clearly on the cross where he humbled himself to death on a cross to take the punishment that we deserve. But then you worked that amazing reversal of bringing him from death to life as the first fruits that we who trust in him will also be raised to eternal life as well. Lord, please give us patience in this life. Help us not to live for the things around us, but to live for the return of Jesus. Please help us not to seek for the good of ourselves, but to the good of each other and to serve him. Please help us to long and yearn for and live for that day when Jesus returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.